Our sermon text from this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, which reads, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are not all, that, that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have from him and shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, please teach us from your word this morning. Please sustain us uh, on a warm day. Pray that you would speak through me to our hearts, to our minds, or that we would understand you better, that we would love you more, that you would send us out with excitement and eagerness and anticipation for the work that you've given each of us to spread your glory across the globe, to declare your name to all peoples, that they would hear, they would see, they would believe, and likewise be saved. So the praise of your great glory and your great name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you. It's been a while since I've been up here. It's good to be with you again. Uh, it's sort of a tradition here at St. Andrews that we open with a, a little story to kind of warm you up and draw your interest into the passage that we're looking at today. But thankfully, all I have to say is, hey, Antichrist, and we're already there. This is why you're here, right? So we will talk about them in time. This won't be a little a fake out, but we've got an interesting passage this morning, a full passage this morning, and I, I hopefully can capture all the different pieces in it in, in sort of a seamless whole. But, Paul, but John, is, John is continuing his exhortation, his encouragement to the people that he's writing to. As we saw in the last section, there's a, a note of warning. Be careful. Careful of what you love. Remember who you are. Um, that, that warning continues into this passage that we have here. We see right at the beginning, children is the last hour. There is not just a sense of here's the time, but again, a sense of warning, a wake-up call of sorts. And in saying that, John's words remind us of two important realities that we need to keep in front of us. First, that this world will not continue on forever. It's easy in the moment. It's easy, especially if you've lived a while, to, to think, to assume, to act, to live, to, to hope, as though this world will just keep on going on as it is. But it's not. 
As long as the time as it takes, we can be assured that at one point in the future, in, in future years, however long that may be, we are moving toward a conclusive end. For us as Christians, a glorious end. But second, in this note of warning, is the note that God's people are going to be tested. Which is important for us to keep in mind. It is easy at times, and, and maybe sometimes we've been taught this way, that to come to Christ is to be freed from difficulty, free from challenges, free from things that might test us, push us, stretch us, hurt us, cause us to suffer. For us as Christians, we know that all those things, first of all, come to us from God, but two, that they are meant for our good. Amen? I was promised I would have at least one amen this morning. There we go. Okay. I was, we, were, we are assured of that, that these things don't simply happen. They are not punishment for us, nor are they incidental for us. They are purposeful. They are for strengthening us, growing us in our dependence of God. Although we know this, let's, let's be honest, we know that these things are so, and yet it is easy, easy for us to lose sight of those things, to become distracted, to become numb, to fall asleep, to take our eye off the ball. And so John is calling us to wake up, not panic, not panic, but to be alert, to pay attention, to look sharp. Is there um, is a podium mic on maybe? I think that's on. I don't know. Do we get it? Okay. The feedback? All right, we're good? All right. But, but to wake up, pay attention, to watch steps, to, to be alert to what's going on, and particularly to be alert of, our, of ourselves, what's happening around us. But why does John say it's the last hour? Well, because the Antichrists are here. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone, anyone, Christian or not, who hasn't heard of the Antichrist. The key character in the book of Revelation, John's vision, he is the terrifying opponent of the church. Almost supernatural abilities. Some appear sometime before the triumphant return of Jesus. I remember in my growing up years, there was a, a graphic novel uh, or comic book, if I'm honest, about this antichrist who had a ring laser and was, was in charge of creating these teams by which Christians would be killed. Horrific, terrifying, especially for a young person. We all, we all have some familiarity with this. He has a Romanian surname as well. But although Revelation is a notoriously challenging book to understand, the most natural read of Revelation seems to indicate that the arrival of this antichrist is a future event, that other things need to happen first. But here, however, John is saying, first of all, that not only has the time of the Antichrist arrived, but there, that there are loads of them. There are many of them. So who are they? Who are they? Well, consider how John describes them in this passage. There's, there's three things here that, Paul, uh, that John says about them. Sorry if I say Paul. I, I, I am much more into Paul than I am into John, so I will switch them. Just read John when I say Paul. But John says these three things. First of all, they deny key doctrines of the apostolic teaching. They deny Jesus. They deny the Father. They deny key doctrines of the apostolic teaching. Second, that their aim is to deceive. Not, not just to mislead. Not just to mess people up and to confuse them. But, but behind that is this attempt to convince others to join them. They are coming in to gather a people to themselves to follow what they are saying, to follow what they believe, to join their party. And lastly, and, and 
I think most important for us to notice is that these were once part of the church. They were among us. They are no longer, and that's how we know who they are, but they were once part of us. This is, this is not someone from Eastern Europe with a power ring. This is someone like you. This is someone like me. In fact, when you think about it, this description sounds very familiar to what we find in similar warnings throughout the New Testament. Paul, writes, Paul says to the uh, elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Or in Jude, in, in much more florid language than this, writes, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness is reserved forever. It was, about, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are both grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And I could go on and on, but virtually every book of the New Testament has some sort of warning about people from within disrupting, defiling, destroying the church. These are not external threats. These are internal threats. And this is an ongoing challenge in the church to this day. They're very difficult to identify for a couple reasons. One, as we've seen, they give every appearance of being one of us. They're godly. They have good families. They're respectable, knowledgeable, often having more knowledge or education or experience than us. They're orthodox. They're involved in the church. They look like us. Not only do they look like us, but they act like we would think to act. They are often good people. They're sincere and passionate, confident, and believe that they are being faithful to the Lord and helpful to the church. And yet, and yet, out of these come those who disrupt, who destroy the church, who deny Christ, maybe not out, you know, Outward, or not, that's not the word I'm looking for. Not in so blatant a way as to deny Christ, but maybe pick some doctrine of his, 
some teaching of his, whether of something that we are to believe or a way in which we are to act or find something to argue over that disrupts the church. And so many different ways that it can take shape. And they disrupt the peace and purity of the church in any number of ways. Many don't even realize what they're doing. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They don't realize what they're doing. That sounds terrifying. What I don't mean for that to, to, to instigate is a witch hunt among us. But to pay attention to our own hearts, our own souls, our own actions, years as I've gotten to preach in a number of different churches around the, the Northwest, time and again hearing testimonies of how these last two years have devastated the church, have split the church, how many have left the church altogether, and others who have taken parties and, and destroyed the fellowship that was there. This is an ongoing challenge for the church. Where we begin is not with looking around at others, but with ourselves. Because any of us could be that person. Any of us could be captured by an idea or a thought and feel so strongly about that this is what is right and doesn't matter what the church is saying or how dare they teach that. Or as oftentimes happens, I've been hurt by the church or by someone in the church and I can't let that go. And bitterness takes place and grows and disrupts the church. So they, they, thinking they are faithful to the Lord, are destroying the fellowship that God created, are ignoring the things that God's told us to in terms of seeking forgiveness, making things right, showing grace, forgiving, making things right, avoiding bitterness. So let's search our own hearts and consider our own actions. Are we humble, not just before the Lord, but before each other? Are our actions in the church ones that build up the church or tear the church apart? Are we prone to gossip? Are we prone to complain? Do we avoid seeking out people that we have an issue with rather than gathering together? All those things are entry points for us to, though we may love the Lord and desire to serve the Lord, be the enemy of his church. Let us secondly encourage one another to continue in fellowship on Sundays and otherwise. We need each other. Spending time together is important for us not only to grow in the Lord and to remind each other of these things and work these things out, but to grow closer together. To be a bulwark against the things that would otherwise tear us apart. To understand each other when we disappoint each other or let each other down. And finally, let us exhort each other about the deceitfulness of sin. That we be quick to confess, that we be quick to restore, honest about ourselves and not hide. Even if it's things that have been going on for a long time, that we would trust our, each other and trust the forgiveness that God has freely offered us in Christ to be who we are before each other. Seek forgiveness and seek restoration and be the kind of church that restores one another. So that's, that's the part of the Antichrist. But what's interesting here is that John doesn't then say, here's how you deal with them, but instead says, here's what you must do. These things, these things that will test the church, 
these Gnostics, these Judaizers, whatever they may be. These are here to test the church, and for you, the proper response is drive closer to the Lord. Existence of Antichrist should drive us into the Word, not so we simply have an answer to them, but so that we know what we've been taught, that we know what God has revealed to us. You have the anointing of God, John says, undoubtedly a reference to the Spirit. And you have therefore no need that anyone should teach you. Not each of us has everything we have and we don't need to come to church. We don't need to listen to anyone else. That we don't even need the scriptures. We've got it all downloaded, matrix-like, into our memory bank. So we've got it all. We need to be taught. Amen? There's so much for us to learn. So much that we need to grow in. So many things that we need to unlearn. The, the, of being made into the image of Christ. The process of being transformed by the renewing of our mind is a lifelong process. One that we never reach the end of and one that we should delight and be excited about because there's so much for us to learn, so much that needs to be challenged and changed in us. But we have that anointing so that, so that we have no need that anyone should teach you and that anyone there seems to be pointed towards those who are promoting these false teachings or otherwise trying to pull people away. They bring something new. They bring something different than what the, what the apostles are teaching, what the Word says. Cling to that Word. Hold on to that Word. And the Spirit not only in, inspired the Word, but is the one who testifies in our heart to the truthfulness of it. So that encouragement to, to lean in on the anointing that God has given you, the gift of the Spirit, to therefore weigh everything that comes along, to prepare you, to help you filter through these things. is the first step they says. But then finally, John ends with this. Most importantly, though, these things should drive us closer to Jesus himself. And here John returns to one of the greatest images of our relationship to Jesus, of him being the vine and we the branches. Abide in him. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. What it means there to abide. We're to draw close to him through, through, three, through, through four main things. One, first we're to draw close to him through his word. We know that it's good for us to be in his word. Amen? It is easy for us if we are not paying attention to the time seasons, to what's happening around us. It's easy for that to become a mere chore rather than the means by which we get to know Christ, we get to know God, we get to know what he's done and what he is doing, to be reminded of the promises. The scriptures are rich, a rich resource for us to grow in depth and breadth and assurance and confidence and joy and humility and calmness, not just before the Lord, but before the world. All that is here for us. This is the means by which we are meant to draw near to Christ, to abide in him, is to first of all know him through his word. So for privilege to be united to Christ, will we take advantage of it and approach him through his word and get to know him in his fullness, to take the time to work through his entire word? The second way that we abide in him is through prayer. And again, not simply the lifting up of our requests, but the confession of who we are, speaking to him, wrestling with him. 
God, this is what I know to be true, but I struggle with this. God, I know you forgive, but I wrestle with this. I still feel guilt about this. God, I don't know what to do. To confess our weakness, I think, is the heart of prayer. Not simply working through a list because that's what Christians are supposed to do, but to feel our need before the only one who can answer those needs. Part of our transformation is the shifting of our dependency on our own strength or on our own resources to fully on God. It's by prayer that we do that. It's through prayer that we are acknowledging, I'm, I can't. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. God, help me. Help me, help this situation, help this person. But prayer is the confession of our complete and abject humility before the Almighty God and our loving Father. So abide in Him through prayer. Third, we draw close to Him through worshiping Him in fellowship with our fellow saints to lift up our hearts together, to sing his praises, to pray together as a group. We undervalue in an age as increasingly disconnected the importance of being together. We need this as people. God meant for us to be with others, not, not just because we need the company, not just because we need the affirmation or, or the free meals if you're younger. We need each other in all circumstances, where we're doing, whether we're doing well or not where things are going great or we're feeling abandoned by the Lord. We need each other. This is, again, is not just a, some sort of a perfunctory duty, but this is our life. This is how we abide in God, is in living life out with each other and not withdrawing. In fact, interesting when you think about this, that these three, drawing close to his word, through prayer, through worship, when we are not doing well, those are the three things that tend to drop off, aren't they? This is the way towards life in Christ. And lastly, we draw close to him through sharing him with others. When you share Christ with others, you get to see what God does through that. When you share your life with him, not, I'm not just talking about one-time message, but in sharing the truth of Christ, of who he is and what he's done and what that means for them, and seeing God work through those things, encourages and builds and strengthens faith. So we abide by drawing close to him through his word and through prayer through worshiping him and through sharing him with others. Another way in which we abide in him is not simply learning about him, but actually putting our trust in him. If you refer back to what we were talking about earlier with, with those in the church who become disruptive influences, putting trust includes things like, Lord, I have no capacity to forgive what's been done to me. I have a deep hurt that I have no outlet for. God, I've been wronged, and I haven't done anything to deserve it. Vindicate me. But to put your trust, offload those things rather than to hold on to those things to the detriment of your own soul and to the detriment of those around you. But to really lean on Christ. Yeah, there's so many other options that we can go to, right? There's so many things presented to us where we can put our trust. Trust in psychology. Put your trust in technique in all the various ways that our wealthy, prosperous nation and culture offers us. But only in Christ is there one that you can trust with everything. 
your fears, your hurts, your worries, your pains, your wrongs, everything. That's how we abide in him, is actually believing it and carrying them no more. And lastly, we abide in him by the continual study of him in order that we may more closely imitate him. We should not be people only who believe the right things about God and have the right doctrines. We should live them out fully in the spirit of Christ. Jesus of anyone was perfect orthodoxy, amen? And continually gave himself to people who weren't. Continually reached out in love to those who otherwise rejected God. He did not make his orthodoxy a barrier to his love. It did not set aside his orthodoxy either. But he loved in a way that challenged everyone who saw it. Why would you speak to them? Why would you let her do that? Why do you hang out with those people? You're giving them the impression that they're okay. You're not doing things the right way, Jesus. The problem is not with Jesus, it's with our own understanding of what is the right way. And I dare say that that is a topic that we could spend the rest of our life studying as well. Um, okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you a short story slash illustration. My son and I are, are caught up right now in this uh, series called Blown Away, which is basically a, a um, master chef for glass blowers. Glass blowing is amazing. It is just... I am just, my mind is completely blown by what they do with glass. And you see these gifted people who have years of experience creating these great things in hours. What would take normally days, they're doing this in hours. And, and not, just, not just what they're coming up with, but then you know, watch these, all this work just disappear in a moment if it happens to break at the wrong time. These are masters at their craft. And yet, as they are pushed in this competition, they, they themselves say, I have so much, I'm going to take risks, I'm learning something here, or I'm putting all I've learned together into this piece, and I still have more to go. If that can be true of people who are gifted at a craft that is incredibly difficult, if they have yet to master glass blowing, which is finite, how can we as Christians hold back from giving the rest of our lives to studying Christ, knowing that we will never reach the end of who he is and what he is like. We will never master that topic. There's so much for us to learn, so much for us to grow. So friends, we are not only in these last days, but we are in this last hour, as it were. We are closer to the return of Christ. That should excite us. That should give us hope. Not just hope that this will all be done, but because for those of us who are in Christ, we have that promise of eternal life. This life will pass away. All things will be made new. We, we will dwell with our God and our maker and our king forever in a place that knows no pain, no suffering, no wickedness, no curse, no sickness, no death. And enjoy the presence of Christ forever. That is our future so what do we do with that now? We draw close to our Lord. We draw close to our Savior. We wake up because he has sent us into this world to shine his lights. 
Let us not be asleep any longer. Let us not become numb to the things that we see around us. Let us not become weary of evil seeing this world as hard as that is. Our hope is not that this world will be reformed, but that Christ will return and make all things new. So let us draw close to him. Let's follow him as we wait for that return. Let's pray. Lord, help us. There are so many different things which call at our attention. There's so many ways in which we are distracted. There's so many ways in which we are hurt or struggling or suffering. So much around us that discourages us, depresses us, angers us. Help us, Lord, to refocus ourselves on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us, Lord, to abide in you, to draw close to you, to learn more of you, to grow in our love and our adoration and our wonder at you, to grow in our excitement and anticipation of your return, to grow in our hope that, that though this world with devils filled, we have nothing to fear, nothing to make us afraid, that we can go out with boldness and humility proclaiming your great name in the hope and belief that you will call all men to yourself in Christ. So Lord, help us. Help us to wake up. Help us as we seek to abide in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.